Bookcraft is pleased to present The Light That Shines in Darkness by Dr. Truman G. Madsen. This recording, part of the series Jesus of Nazareth, was made on location in Israel. Because of the nature of the recording locations, background sounds may be frequently heard during the recording. We're in a cave. <laughs> you remember that Jesus was born in a cave, according to one tradition, uh, a grotto which was reserved for both animals and sometimes humans. And you're aware that later in his life, he, perhaps during the temptation, for example, may have sought refuge at night in a cave in the Judean wilderness. You're aware that he, in the last week of his life, abode, according to Luke, in the Mount of Olives. And that means, likely, that in a sequestered place, perhaps under a tree, or perhaps uh, in a cave, he spent the nights. And finally, in a hand-hewn cave, he was buried. And that cave tomb became the womb of his resurrection. Not only the master, but his followers, both the uh, predecessor prophets, Elijah for one, who sought refuge in a cave, and his own immediate followers, Peter and others, would likely have spent some of their worship time, usually in hiding, in caves. In short, the first Jewish Christians were probably cavemen. It seemed appropriate for us to come into this cave, which is an ancient one. It is thought by the Department of Antiquities to go back to Roman times. A family, a Bedouin family, lived in this cave and descended to it from that little fig tree that you saw in a, an opening above. And the, I suppose, the floor, which is solid now, of cement, was added at some point in this century. And also these doors, which are now like a closing of a tomb. A place for us to talk about light. The theme tonight is why hide your light under a bushel when a thimble will do. <laughs> you all know the parable uh, that involves olive lamps. Behold, in my left hand, and I'm holding a candle so you see it, an olive lamp designed as they were in Roman times, the kind of lamp used in the lifetime of Jesus. Small enough to fit in your palm and carry. The content of such a lamp is olive oil, which had to be crushed under tremendous pressure. And the first of those pressure efforts made oil, which according to divine command was to be used in another lamp, larger and multi-branched, in the temple, the menorah, before that in the tabernacle. The oil in such a lamp was sufficient, given a small wick and a consistent flame, to last about six hours. 
but it wouldn't last all night. Hence, one who intended to have light through an entire night would not only need a lamp with this amount of oil, but also a carrier, a pitcher, which would have further replenishing oil in it, and that would have to be poured in at the end of the six hours. In modern revelation, the commandment is given to us that we are to prepare for the bridal feast, the kind of feast that the virgins, whether wise or foolish, hoped to attend. A glorious celebration, a banquet. We are to prepare ourselves for the final great supper by three things, it says. We are to have our lamps trimmed. That means that the wick at the burning end when it was blackened needed to be cut in preparation for fresh lighting. Trimmed and burning and third, oil with us. I want Anne, first of all, to be my great assistant to light this tiny wick and it may not last long but at least we'll be able to see how much light even one tiny olive lamp can give. Notice, this is a large cave. There's enough light from this to cast shadows. As one of the parables has it, enough light to fill the whole room. And that, it turns out, becomes symbolic of the light that is intended to fill our whole bodies. Says modern revelation, if your eye be single to my glory, your whole bodies shall be filled with light, and there shall be no darkness in you, and that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. The statement in the New Testament, remember in the famous Sermon on the Mount, says men do not light a candle and put it under a bushel. The exact language would be closer to this. Men do not light an olive lamp and put it under a wheat container or measure. The, uh, the opposite, of course, is the intent. A lamp intended to light a room is placed in a prominent place. On the occasion of the feast, uh, Sukkot, which was also called the Feast of Tabernacles, it was part of the official celebration to build outside one's house a hut, a kind of tabernacle, hammer and nails uh, in modern times, which in its upper reach wasn't completely covered, but had palm branches or other coverings, and that was required so that there would still be uh, some space through which one could see the stars. Thus, in huts out of doors, the Jewish people would memorialize the times they were in the desert and fully dependent upon God. Associated with that was the water drawing ceremony, perhaps later than the original commandments 
in Torah, which involved uh, over on the mount and in the temple, the high priest going way down to the pool of Siloam, bringing up the last water of that season, always in the fall, always at the end of the harvest, and bringing it up and pouring it out on the altar of the temple to signify both gratitude for the completion of the harvest year, but also as an invocation that new rains and new waters would be sent. And there is an association in the scriptures, ancient and modern, between the flow of water and the sparkle of light. And as a matter of fact, in testimony of that is the tradition which we only know about through the Talmud, that they built stands at least 75 feet high, huge containers on the top of them, and the wick, the containers for olive oil, the wick was made of the pants or pantaloons of the high priest. And when they were lit at night during the feast, it is said that the entire city, not just the Temple Mount, was illuminated. And the Talmud goes on to say that if you had never seen Jerusalem uh, lit at such a time, you had never seen beauty. Well, it's in that very setting, during that time, that Jesus chose to say, I am the light of the world. Now let's pursue implications. For through the Lord Jesus Christ and modern prophets, we have been taught so much that is rich about the meaning and power of light and the association of it with all things righteous and good. We learn, for example, from the section known as 50, which was given in the midst of confusion, uh, strange experiences that occurred in the early church, and strange spirits had been jostling, as it were, the saints, and they inquired to understand what is the test, how can we distinguish what is of God from what is of men, or worse, from the adversary. And so this revelation is given in which the following promise is made. That which is of God is light. That follows a verse that says, that which doth not edify, which is to say lift, illumine, uh, enliven, that which doth not edify is not of God, and is darkness. That which is of God is light, and he that receiveth light and continueth in God receiveth more light, and that light groweth brighter and brighter until the perfect day. Now Jesus personally experienced light in the depths at the lowest point on the earth, namely near the Dead Sea. He was baptized by John and came forth from the water and then 
there descended upon him light and a voice spoke a sentence that has been spoken again in other dispensations this is my beloved son John for one and it's not clear from the record whether others saw that and became witness of it and as a divine emblem or symbol that this was a moment of truth and that it was God and God's power that had been manifest a dove not a dove that embodied the Holy Ghost but a dove which we're taught is the sign or the symbol of the Holy Ghost was present no deception divine truth so we learn from the lips of Christ himself but he speaks of himself in the third person in this case that he ascended up on high but not until he had descended below all things in that he comprehended all things that he might be in and through all things the light of truth that revelation goes on then to identify him as the source of the light we identify just with our physical eyes it says that he is in the light he is the light of the sun of the moon and of the stars and the light which shineth is through him that enlighteneth your eyes which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings so here is a kind of light that yes may be in its physical mode stopped by opaque surfaces hence shadows but somehow that same light and I take it more powerfully because of its intellectual impact reaches into our spirits or our minds directly as a laser beam if you will or as x-ray as if Joseph Smith later said we had no bodies at all it is the same light that quickeneth your understandings and then it goes on to say and these are heavy profound insights every one of them the light which is in all things which is through all things which is the law by which all things are governed which fills the immensity of space that is the light of Christ we learn further and this is John's testimony that everyone receives something of that light no one is totally bereft of the light of Christ and after he has described the heavenly bodies which to see he says is to see God moving in his majesty and power he goes on to say that one who comes to that light who welcomes it who cherishes it who treasures it will grow in the light until he is purified and cleansed from all sin and if we don't realize in this world as apparently many do not if we don't realize that his light undergirds our lives and our consciousness 
Then the day will come when we will relearn that. For, he says, speaking of the life to come, then shall you know, implying if we don't know sooner, that you have seen me, and that I am, and that I am the true light that is in you, otherwise you could not abound. I am the true light that is in you. Otherwise, you could not abound. Abound means to flourish, to grow, even to live. And has direct connections, I believe, with two other words from the same root. Abide. One abides in Christ. That means continues to reach and to receive. And the word abundant which he used for himself when he said, I am come, that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Now let's talk for a minute about an experiment we could render. I'm not sure this will work, but she can take the candle and put it next to the flame of the olive lamp. And what will happen? As two flames brought closer together become one so the light that is in us responds to the greater light that is in the Lord Jesus Christ so he says in modern revelation intelligence cleaveth to intelligence light cleaveth unto light truth embraceth truth the opposite does not happen if you are illumined you are drawn to light but you are repelling darkness if you are full of truth or are truth full in your nature you respond to a truthful spirit and you are troubled. You are uncomfortable in the presence of a lying spirit. The gift of discernment is not only the gift to recognize the evil that may be present in one who is apparently good, but recognize the good in one who is on the surface apparently unimpressive or ugly or unrighteous. That's discernment. That's light. Light cleaveth unto light. Related to that is the experience we describe or try to, in our limited way, on the Mount of Transfiguration. Again, we do not know the exact mountain. It may have been Mount Tabor. It may have been Mount Hermon or any other of the number of mountains. But on a mount, a high place, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and they experienced light. Religious art, all through the centuries, has tried to depict the phenomenon of a person having light by what is called the halo, or a nimbus, which is a little circle, registered above the head 
But these are all misleading in a way because in the experience of receiving and radiating the light of God, all, not just above the head or even the crown or the face, all of the body is influenced. So not just the face of the Master, but his whole being, as one gospel writer puts it, was glistering. And not just his own personality, but the apparel he wore. His, his robes were filled with light. So were those of his disciples, his chosen three. If they had been able to look into a mirror, which they weren't at the time, they would have seen and perhaps have been surprised to see that they themselves were illumined and alight.